Good morning, family. So good to see you this morning on this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Mother's Day. It's our privilege today to celebrate the mothers in our midst. And I know not everybody's mothers, but is it okay that we celebrate mothers? All the moms, won't you stand? And then I can pray for you and just, we want to bless you. So if you're close to a mom standing, won't you just put your hand gently on her and just let's pray for her and bless her. Father, we thank you for every mom that we have in this community, Father. We know that some are missing their moms today, can't be with them. Some have lost moms, Lord. And we pray for all of those also that they would just experience your comfort and your grace. And even those, Lord, that aren't moms, Lord, we, we just love them and we bless them. And we thank you for every one of them, Lord. But it's our privilege to celebrate moms. Thank you, Lord, for what they represent of who you are. For the grace, the care, the love, the, the strength that we can celebrate as we receive from our moms and as we see in them. And therefore, we pray today, Lord, that they will just know that we value them, we appreciate them, and thank you, Father. We just commend them to you and we bless them in the name of Jesus. And everybody say it aloud. Amen. Amen. You're welcome to take your seats. Well, today I want to share a word that brings mothers, some of the things in our nation, and the One Swanee series all together, and this is not easy to do. So pray that it all works out. Our theme for today that's being preached all across the city is One Heart for God's People. And um, to start from a place of mother heart, I don't know how many of you are aware that Paul, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle, actually had a mother figure in the Scripture. Let's be honest. How many of you knew that? Some of you know it because I told you in the last week as we were preparing for this. So any, I didn't know this until recently. Won't you go with me to Romans chapter 16 and verse 13. In Romans 16 verse 13 we read this. Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Wow. Amazing. The Apostle Paul had somebody that he felt was like a mother to him. The, the last chapter of the book of Romans, chapter 16, is a very personal part of that book where Paul personally greets about 30 people that is in the church of Rome, that he somehow had relationship with, that he knew personally, that he, that he valued and appreciated. And among them is the, is these, are these two people, Rufus and his mother, that he particularly sends a greeting to. This, this is about 30 years after Paul's conversion experience. So about 30 years has passed since Paul became a follower of Jesus himself, and 30 years later he writes to the Romans, and he includes in the greeting at the end of the book, he includes these names, and amongst them, these two that he now just sends love and appreciation to. Um, and uh, it's around this that I want to talk a little bit about this morning, and just try and give you a little bit of a picture of what's going on here. Now, we don't know a lot but as I've studied it, and just from different places and different commentators and historians from the Scripture, there's, a little, there's, there's things we can piece together, and there's circumstantial evidence that we can bring to bear in this situation that tells us a little bit about who these people are and what may have happened in how Paul describes her as a person that was a mother to him. So obviously, they, this, this family, this mother and her son is now in Rome, in the church in Rome, and Paul sends a greeting. Paul, at this point, hadn't been to Rome himself, so he's writing to them from a different place. He's actually on a journey to Jerusalem. 
Remember the story of how the Jerusalem church had a famine and Paul went around collecting from all the other churches and said it's right that they give to the support to the church in Jerusalem that was going through a tough time because everybody owed their, their, their faith basically to the church in Jerusalem so they wanted to respond and bless them. So Paul sent people around and they collected this offering and he's now taking some of that offering back to Jerusalem. So as he's traveling to Jerusalem, he's busy writing this letter and he's just sending a note to people that he loved and appreciated at the time. Now, what happened here? We don't quite know. But we can think, and if you want to just go with me a little bit this morning, this is not the gospel truth, this is filling in the blanks. But I think we're okay. Somewhere along the line, Paul, in his travels to be the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, meets up with this lady. And in some way, she acts like a mother to him. Now, you and I must remember that Paul's travels weren't on first-class airplanes or in ships, you know, with nice cabins and eat as much as you like buffets. His travels were tough. They were hard. The, the, this, the, the, whole, the whole thing of traveling in that day was difficult. Many nights spent outside sleeping under the stars or in caves or someplace or looking just for somebody to give them some place where they could safely stay. His travels left him in many difficult situations. You know, he describes how he was beaten, left for dead, shipwrecked, often in tough situations. Somewhere along the line, we don't know where and how, but he met this lady. And it's possible, if you want to imagine with me, that she cared for him. Now, it was the custom of some of the people in that time, of Christian people, that they, that they supported the traveling ministers by actually preparing rooms in their homes to leave them so that when they traveled through the area, they had a place to go and sleep and had at least a warm, dry bed with food and, you know, with, with some comfort. It's possible that she may have been one of those ladies that, that in her house made a space. Somewhere she met Paul. And she said to him, whenever you come through our area, please come and stay with us. Perhaps she found out what his favorite coffee was. And she made sure she went to the store and she bought the pods. And in her machine, she always had a little box that said Paul's coffee. Nobody was to drink that. That was only for him. Perhaps she knew his favorite type of bread or, or what, which peanut butter he really liked. Perhaps it was that she, she knew his favorite meal and she would prepare it and make sure that it was there. She, she, she knew how to just comfort him. It's even possible that sometimes she may have comforted him by looking after some of his wounds that he suffered and, and just put ointment on it. And, and Perhaps she sent him encouraging messages. Every now and then she'd WhatsApp him, you know, a scripture. They didn't have the New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. They had phones, but not the New Testament. So she would WhatsApp him a message every now and then, and just, you know, thinking of you, Paul, praying for you, trusting you're doing well, you know, just a, what mothers do, some joke that he didn't understand what it actually was, you know, things that mothers do. And she was just like a mother to him, he says. She in some way comforted him on his journeys, just looked after him, it was just that little bit of gentleness towards him. And he appreciates her for this. How many of you are thankful for mother figures in your life? How many of us have received just the comfort of a mom that just at the right time just, you know, comes and when you're sick, 
particularly as men, don't we need our mothers when we are sick? You know, when I have the flu, the world comes to an end. And I'm so glad my mom's close by. And you, sometimes you just want your mommy. Or whatever it is, we, we so appreciate our mothers that, and not only care for us, but their strength, their fierceness at times. My mother has carried me in prayers for, for all these years and fought all these battles over my life and my brother's life as she fought for us in prayer and sometimes fought with us. Amen? We need mothers. So Paul appreciates this mother. Now, is there anything more we know about who this lady may have been? Now, it's generally true in Scripture that when they mention somebody's name, they do it because it's recognizable to the people that the letter is sent to. And this name, Rufus, is repeated elsewhere in Scripture. And we cannot say it for 100%, but it is reasonable, it is mo most likely that it's the same Rufus that gets referred to. So I want to take you to Mark 15, where the name Rufus is also mentioned. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander, and Ruth, thank you, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Wow, what a thought. That this Rufus and his mother that is now in the church in Rome, that Paul greets and says she was like a mother to me, may in all likelihood be the wife of Simon of Cyrene that carried the cross of Christ. What an amazing thought. This is more than 30 years apart, these two events. What a thought. So he sends this greeting to this Rufus and his mother. Now, what's the story here? Let's tell you a little bit about the story. First of all, if you want to talk about who Simon of Cyrene was, then you have to talk about Cyrene. Because that's the first clue that we know about him. He was Simon that came from Cyrene. Cyrene is Libya. It's what, or a part of Libya. It's what we would refer to today as Tripoli in Libya, the capital city of Libya. That's actually where the region of Cyrene was in, the, in that time. It's about 900 miles from Cyrene to Jerusalem. If you travel it, it takes you anywhere between six weeks and three months, some say that it would take to travel from North Africa all the way to Jerusalem. From about 300 before Christ, we know that there was a large Jewish population in that area in Libya in northern Africa. The Greeks in 300 before Christ actually forced 100,000 Jews to go live in that area as they dispersed them. And uh, this population grew and became quite strong and were wealthy businessmen and influential people. And uh, they were well established and they were also kept close contact with Jerusalem and, and, and the, the, the Palestine. They, there was actually a synagogue, you can read about in Acts, that the synagogue of the Cyrenians. That they had their own synagogue in Jerusalem. So there was lots of travel between the two. And so Simon of Cyrene was one of these Jews that... Probably his children, his boys were now of age, you know, sort of 13, 12, 13, around that age, where it made sense to them to travel to Jerusalem with him. It became one of the very important things for Jewish people that, every, that at least once in their life, if not more, as often as they could and as possible it was to them, that they would go to Jerusalem to go to the great feast particularly. It was of great importance for them religiously because it became a place, a time where you would bring your sins to the Lord and have your sins and that of your family be forgiven. And it was very important. 
So Simon decides this year that now is the time. I'm going to take my boys, and we're going to take this journey, and we're going to go to Jerusalem. So for between six weeks and three months, they are on the road, traveling. Now, where there were Roman roads, travel became a little bit easier, but generally also hard, tough, a long journey that they are on the road going to Jerusalem. The boys must have been quite excited. Perhaps Simon has been there before, and he'd been sharing with them all the stories and about how wonderful Jerusalem is and the temple and the, and the priests, and, and, and they were looking forward to this great experience that they were going to have in Jerusalem and to fulfill their religious duties and responsibilities, and, and there was a deep satisfaction in them that they could undergo this journey and go to Jerusalem. So on this particular day, they come into Jerusalem, having traveled for so long. You can imagine how tired they got, but as they're getting closer to Jerusalem, the excitement wells up in against in them, and it reminds them of what they're going to see and experience. As they're getting to Jerusalem, they may not be aware of all this that's going on and what's happened with Jesus, and, 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 and as they get in, they see this crowd lining a, the street. And like all people do when there's a crowd, we all go and check out. This wasn't a, a Black Friday sale And that's why the crowd was there. How many of you in Black Friday just join a crowd? It's like, okay, there's something good happening here. Or an iPhone sale or something. This was just a crowd. And so they come and they they sort of stand on the side of the road thinking, what's going on? Asking the people, what's going on? And they say, no, there's this criminal that's going to be crucified. And and, and the crowd's waiting. and, and, And then he could see up the road possibly. He can see here comes this Roman soldiers with the men that are going to be crucified. And he's standing there. And, and his boys, and, and he explains to them what's going on. He explains to them how terrible this is. And these people are criminals that have been found guilty by Roman law. And they're going to go through something that's really painful, but also very embarrassing. It's, it's really hard. And, and, and he explains to his boys, and they're standing there watching this happen. And the scripture tells us, if you carry on verse 22 on, that when, the, when they came closer A Roman soldier grabbed Simon and compelled him to carry the cross. Now, let's just remind ourselves of why it was necessary to have the cross of Christ be carried by somebody else. You see, one of the things the Romans did with these criminals is they scourged them, which meant they beat them with a whip, a a whip that was made up of leather with pieces of bone, glass, stone, objects that were woven into this whip. And so they would take a prisoner like this and they would bend him over a, 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 like a, a, a tree, you know, a, like a beam, and uh, then they would proceed to beat this person. But they did this very strategically. When a scourging was taken place, there was a scribe present, a person that would write down. Because what they were trying to do is find out all the crimes this criminal was guilty of. Because the police would, like in our day, have a lost, lots of cases that were not solved, unsolved cases. So every time they beat a criminal with a whip, they would ask that criminal, what other crimes have you committed? And then they would beat the criminal, and then the criminal would cry out any other crimes that they've committed, and the scribe would stand and write down. And this became a very effective way for the Romans to clear their, their, their backlog of cases, to the, how they would clear the unsolved cases for their police and their military that were looking after the people or governing the people. They would clear the the list. They would just tick off. Okay, that crime we didn't know, now it's solved. We can put it away, put the file away, solved. Stamp, solved. 
And so every time they beat the criminal and he cried out a crime, the, the next beat of the whip would be a little bit softer. And this would motivate this person. Now, this beating was so severe that it said that many people didn't survive the scourging, the 39 lashes. Many wouldn't survive it. And some that survived it actually went insane, went mad because of the pain. Now, you can think of Jesus particularly because Jesus was not a criminal. He had no crimes to confess. So there was no softening of the blows. Every time they beat him, it was as hard as the previous one because he had nothing to confess. The scribe was standing there with nothing to record. And so they beat Jesus, and Jesus got, you know, when it was finished, they, they took the transverse beam of the, of the cross, the horizontal part, as they would normally do, and then they would put that on the shoulders of the criminal, and that criminal would carry that cross all the way to Golgotha. But Jesus, being so weakened, couldn't carry the cross. So as they were coming down, and Jesus was struggling and stumbling, a Roman soldier went and took hold of Simon. And he forced him to carry this cross. He compelled him. Now, there was a law in Rome at that time that any Roman soldier could make anybody carry something for him that he wants to. They, they, there was a, literally a law passed that when a soldier had to do just one act, and if he did that act to you, that compelled you to carry whatever he wanted you to carry. And that was they would generally take their spears, you know the spears that a Roman soldier had that had a... Uh, the sharp blade at the top, they would turn the, sp the spear to the flat side. So if this was the cutting side of the point of the spear, they would turn it flat, and they would just walk past you and put that spear on your shoulder. When they did that, that meant you have to carry whatever they wanted you to carry. That would be the word compel. You were compelled. This law allowed any soldier to grab any person they wanted and compel them, but there was a limitation to the law. The law said that you, you, can, you only have to do it for one mile. So a soldier could compel you to carry something, but only for one mile. Remember, the Roman roads had mileposts. Every one mile there was a post. And so when a Roman soldier compelled you to carry something, you picked it up, whatever he was carrying or wanted you to carry, and then you'd carry it for one mile. Interesting that when Jesus said, if somebody compels you to carry for one mile, then you must go the extra mile. This is part of the context of what he was saying, but that's a side issue. So here Simon gets grabbed. The so soldier puts his spear on his shoulder and says, you will carry this cross. Imagine the fear, the, what struck them at that moment. Suddenly him and his boys are thrust in the middle of this horrible, horrific thing that is taking place. No Jew wants to get close to anything like this. Imagine him looking at his boys, and they struck with horror. They don't know what's going on. And the Roman soldier grabs him and puts this cross on him. Now, putting that cross on him became really difficult for him, first of all, because that meant he's now associated with this crime. I mean, from there on, when he's carrying that transverse beam, the other people don't know that he's not the criminal. They don't know that he's just, you know, so suddenly he's part of this. But there's a bigger disappointment that they encounter now. Because the moment they put that cross on him, and the blood of Jesus now falls on his body, he becomes impure. And he's no longer allowed to attend the feast. Traveled for 900 miles, on foot, or with a donkey, 
for six to three months, six weeks to three months, to come and attend the feast. Now he's not allowed to. It's done. He cannot allow the feast because he's impure now. What disappointment. He had to turn to his boys when this was all done and said, sorry, we come all this way. We can't attend anymore. Now we've all gone to something and have been disappointed we weren't allowed to get in. Perhaps a movie that you wanted to go and see or a show or something. And, and you were so excited about going to it and bought tickets or, or you know, thought you're going to get tickets at the stadium or at the thing. And when you get there, they say it's full. You can't get in. And then you're disappointed. But this is not that kind of disappointment. This is far deeper. Because that means now they cannot go and sacrifice for the sins of their family and for themselves. And they have to carry for at least another year the burdens of their sin. And who knows, perhaps they'll never come back to Jerusalem and have this sacrifice being able to be done for them by the priest. So this is a, a deep disappointment. The boys are disappointed. The father's disappointed. He carries that beam I don't know what he did, but I could imagine that when he got to the top and the soldiers took it off of him, he got out of there as quickly as he could. But he carries this beam. And now they probably rested for a day or two and then started their journey back to go home. So mom's waiting for them to come home. It's now between four and six months since they've left home. She's probably expecting them to come and to hear the, looking forward to hearing the stories that they're going to tell about how great it was in Jerusalem and how wonderful experience they had it and, and what it looked like and everything. But when they get home and they come into the house and they sit down and she makes them a cup of tea and they talk, they start just sharing their disappointment, their frustration, perhaps even their anger at what happened, that they were grabbed and brought into the middle of something so terrible. They travel so far only to be subjected to something so horrible and that they were disappointed in that which they thought they were going to have. So as a family, they had to deal with this. Mom had to sit with her husband and the children, the boys, and say now, Let's process this. Let's, let's, how do we deal with this? They suddenly had to deal with something that they never thought they would have to deal with. They had to deal with this deep disappointment. Now, disappointment is not foreign to any of us. We've all experienced disappointment. Some small disappointments, some great disappointments. Perhaps things that we really expected and hoped and worked for and thought that it's going to happen. But then it, we got disappointed. If you're a professional sports person, you have to learn to deal with disappointment all the time. If you, if you were a football follower this week, this was a fantastic week to watch football. Not for the Holland Dutch people among us. You can see on Gerben's face, if you know what happened to the Dutch team on, on Thursday or Wednesday night, it became this, this hope. They were 3-0 up at halftime on aggregate, thinking they're going to go to the European final, and everything looked so great, and then suddenly it all changed. And after the match, you see these faces, the comparison of the team that won, that didn't think they were going to win, and the joy and the excitement. And then you see the Dutch team Ajax and the absolute, how distraught they were, the disappointment. Having prepared and worked so hard, thinking it's going to be possible just to have it yanked away from them. As the Pirates fans feel at the moment. <laughs> sundowns, come on, sundowns. 
Who's all the Sundowns fans? Sundowns. Who are the real Sundowns fans? Not just because they won now. I mean, in that sport, and you can see the tears, but each of us have stories, don't we? Of disappointment in our lives. Of perhaps a relationship that you started and you fell in love with somebody and you thought, this is, oh, it's going to be fantastic. And then for some other reason, it all just goes wrong. And the disappointment. Or perhaps you studied for something and you worked hard and, and you thought, this is going to be the career that I, I love. And, and then the disappointment of either perhaps discovering that this is not actually what you thought it is. Or having a degree and you can't find a job. And the disappointment of that. Or health. Or working really hard for something and then it comes to nothing. We've all dealt with disappointment. And here this family has to deal with disappointment. A mother sits with her husband and boys and now says, okay. Now I think, which I'll show you why I think so a bit later, but I think they did it well. Somehow they were able to overcome their disappointment and process through their disappointment. It may be possible that they followed some of the steps that I want to share with you now about how do we deal with disappointment. Just six steps that I think is helpful for having in my own life, how do I deal with disappointment sometimes, and even with our children. Isn't it so sad when you have to help your children deal with disappointment? Because it's unexpected to them. So the first step that I want to propose as how we deal with disappointment, perhaps this is something of what they did as a family. You come to terms with it. You give yourself a moment, firstly, to say, I am disappointed, and it's okay. I'm a human being. I experience these emotions. It's okay. Come to terms with your disappointment. Begin to describe it to yourself. Perhaps you can include somebody else. And if you're really struggling, talk with somebody else. Process it with somebody else. Natasha is always on us as a family. How are we processing? What are we doing to process? Are you processing? Are you describing it to yourself? It helps because sometimes we feel, I'm just disappointed, but we don't know why and what. And, and if you can sit down and describe it, these are my feelings. This is what's really going on. And get a, because the problem with something like disappointment as an emotion, it becomes a cloud that covers everything. And you know, you can't deal with a cloud because you cannot get a grip on it. But if you start describing it and coming to terms with it and start understanding it, then you start giving yourself handles to say, okay, this is what it is and this is what it's not. So give yourself a moment. Come to terms with it. That's the first step. Second step is do a reality check. Because what happens with feelings like disappointments, because they become this cloud, they become all-encompassing and we feel like, I'm disappointed. And you suddenly feel like everything is disappointing. So perhaps a person disappointed you, now you say, all people disappoint me. Because you haven't done a reality check. Reality check is where we start separating the facts and the feelings from one another. I don't know about you, but I found that very important to do. Because I can easily feel like everything is terrible. Until I start saying, okay, but now what's really going on? What are the facts here? And I, I validate my feelings in the sense that I pay attention to them. My feelings are important. But at, at some point I have to say, but this feeling is not aligned with what's really going on. Everybody dis doesn't disappoint me. I'm just disappointed in this situation. But there's still lots of other things where I'm not disappointed. So that it doesn't feel all-encompassing, all-inclusive. 
It helps to write so that you describe it for yourself and get to terms with it and, and, and separate the thoughts, and the feelings, and the facts. The third thing is, so firstly is come to terms with it. Secondly, do a reality check. Thirdly, choose your response. You don't have an, I don't have control over what happens to us, but we definitely have control over how we respond to it. Simon of Cyrene didn't have control over the fact that just by some f- fluke, that day he was in that space at that moment in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he was grabbed out of all the people in the crowd. He was grabbed and made to carry this cross and everything that that caused in their lives. He didn't have control over that, but they did have control over how they responded to it. And don't, let's never take, let somebody take that away from us. Always give ourselves the space to say, how do I respond? And choose to respond. Because if we just respond, we're just going to respond out of our flesh. But if we can respond, if we can take time, if we can take a beat, just take a moment and pray and say, Lord, give me your perspective. What are you asking of me? How do I respond? It'll often be the opposite way of what you feel to respond. So that you don't say things that makes it worse, but can actually start the process of bringing this around to that which God wants. The fourth step is don't allow negativity and self-pity to take over. When you choose your response, in that moment start saying, okay, I know what I feel like doing and I know what I feel like reacting, but I'm not going to let negativity take over. You see, our brains are interesting. Scientists tell us that our brains, for some other reason, are generally wired to look for the negative thing first. Whenever we experience something, our brain takes a shortcut to what is the negative. It's like it's our natural response is, this happened and these are all the bad things that's going to result because of it. You actually have to train your mind how to learn to look for the positive. You have to retrain your mind. And to start saying, okay, instead of just jumping for the negative, I'm going to lay hold of my mind. This is the scripture say, take every thought captive. Gird up the loins of your mind. David writes about instructing his mind. How do we bring our minds captive under the Lord Jesus and say as believers, Holy Spirit, thank you that you can help me in this moment. That I'm not just going to see the negative, but thank you, Lord. Even if I may not see it, I give you time to speak to me so that I can see the positive. I can see that there's hope. And even if I can't see it, that I can say, Lord, I believe in you, and therefore I know there's hope. Good can come from even this. And don't allow yourself to have a pity party for too long. It's okay. In that first stage of coming to terms with it, Invite yourself to a party. Give yourself little orange or red cold drink. Eat some of those biscuits, Mari biscuits. Comes from the word Mara in the Bible, bitter. (laughs) Have those little biscuits. Sit there and cry and wallow and eat ice cream. Just, but only for half an hour. Because if you stay there longer, it's going to become a long-term party. And it'll only be you at that party for the rest of your days. Because people don't like to hang around with people that have pity parties. It's okay. We all need it. I can feel pretty sorry for myself every now and then. But I'm so glad I have a wife that gives me perspective. (laughs) 
and the Lord that comes and sometimes just says, stop your nonsense. Don't allow that to take control of you. Fifth one, find the positive in the situation. Like I said, even if you can't find it, ask the Lord to help you. Then last one is step forward. Stand up and say, okay. Either this that I've worked on, which is collapsed, I'm going to restart and rebuild it. Because I still believe this is the right thing. Or start saying, okay, perhaps this wasn't it. Lord, help me understand what is the new thing that I have to. But start. Don't let your disappointment rob you of an appointment with God's purpose in your life. Can I say that again? Let's not let our disappointments rob us from the appointments that God has with us for His purposes. And I think this family followed something like that. Because now, 30 years later, we read about them. That they have become part of the story of the New Testament. So something must have happened. That after they've processed this disappointment, perhaps Simon said to them, I don't know how to, what happened, but I cannot get that man out of my mind. I don't know if, the, if him and Jesus had any words while they were carrying that cross and on that road together. I don't know what happened, but something happened to him. Something that said, I cannot just carry on with my life and forget this. I have to respond to this. And somewhere his family agreed to it and they uprooted themselves. They moved from North Africa and to somewhere they said, we're going to find this story of Jesus. And perhaps later they discovered that he's dead and, and, and he, obviously they thought you know, he was crucified. And then they heard the stories that there's people following him and they moved around until they found the people of, that were the followers of Christ. And then they joined them and stayed with them and eventually moved and then went to Rome and now we find them in Rome. And I want to take you back to, as I finish, worship team, you guys, if you wouldn't join me on stage, I'd appreciate it. Now we find Paul writing these words that we read earlier. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. I think it's fantastic that Paul uses that word and that description of Rufus. He says, chosen in the Lord. It's like he's referring back to his dad that was chosen by a Roman soldier to carry the cross of Christ. And it's almost like he's saying, you may have thought that that happened on that day and that that was a terrible thing that happened to you and nothing, nothing to do with God, but you were chosen by God to carry the cross of Christ. It wasn't just random. You were chosen. And today we see His Son living in that chosenness, continuing on His wife, continuing on. We don't know what happened to Joseph or Simon, and we don't know what happened to uh, his, the other, Alexander, the other brother. But here we know of these two, chosen in God. You see, this is the reality for us. No matter how disappointed we can get in something, we don't know what God will do if we just give Him a bit of time. We don't know. We don't know the plans that He has for us. We don't know the seeds that He's sowing in the season of disappointment and the, and the victory that it will lead to down the line. We don't know. And if we stay in our disappointment, if we do not say, Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm going to 
trust you and I'm going to allow you to strengthen me and enable me to get out of this season of disappointment so that your will can be done, so that I do not miss the appointment of your purpose. Now, God can, only God could do what God can do, but He needs me to do what I need to do. This family had to decide this is not going to be the end for them, but they're going to carry on. Then God said, now I will bring from 900 miles apart, I will bring you together into my purpose. And they met with Paul the apostle. That's what God can do. You and I can't do that. But if we don't stand up and say, yes, Lord, I believe. I will put hope in you. Continue to trust, even though I'm disappointed. God cannot do that. It's us doing our little bit and him doing his big bit. And then his purposes. I want to apply that today, first of all, and say, I don't know what your story is, but I think it's possible that there are people here today that are carrying disappointment. Perhaps you're carrying some disappointment, personally. Just a sense of, I had so much hope. And it feels like it's just not working out. It can be a current situation. It can be something from it a long time ago. And you're saying, I'm disappointed. I want to tell you, if you're a child of the living God, you're a child of the King. And He never stops working on your behalf. Romans 8 verse 28 says, For God makes all things work together for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And as that movie says, in the end it all works out. If it hasn't worked out, it's not the end yet. Just give God time. Just stay in Him. Follow the process. God knows what He's doing. It can take a generation, but He knows. He has clothed us. Ansa gave me this as a prophetic sign of the blood of Christ that was on Simon of Cyrene that fell on him that day. And you know, later the, gospel, the, the, the New Testament says, take up your cross daily. He was the first to take up the cross in some prophetic way. But you know, we get to take up not only the cross, but we get to take up the blood of Christ that covers us. And whatever our disappointments are, the blood of Christ brings the presence of God and the purposes of God into our lives. And it's the blood of Christ that separates us, that separates us. So I wonder this morning if you want to just stand with me and say, Lord, I give you my disappointments. I want to pray a prayer, and then I'm going to apply it in one more way, and then we're finished. Can you close your eyes with me, and let's just pray this. Father, I thank you that we are your children here today. And Lord, I pray that if there's people here carrying disappointment, Lord, I pray that you would remind them of that now by your Spirit, Lord. We don't want to go digging. We're not seeking for something. If you're not feeling anything at this point in time, then that's okay. Just pray for somebody else. Perhaps the Lord will remind you later. Remember this message. But it may be that right now as you're standing, the Holy Spirit is bringing to the surface something in your life, and you're going, this is a disappointment that I'm experiencing or have been carrying with me. And Lord, today we want to give you these disappointments. We want to say they're real, Lord. They're real disappointments. We don't ignore them. We don't make as if they didn't happen. But Lord, we bring them to you and we say, we don't want to let our disappointment miss our, let us cause us to miss our appointment with your purpose. And we say, Lord, we trust you. We trust you. 
we trust you. Lord, I break the power of disappointment over people today in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we take authority over the power of disappointment. And Lord, I pray for people to have the strength and the courage and the ability to start bringing you into their process, to process with you, to choose their response, to look for the positive thing and not to be captured and caught in the place of disappointment. If you trust in God just this morning just to bring freedom, just lift your hands as a sign of saying, Lord, I'm letting go. I'm opening this up to you. Just lift your hands to him and say, Lord, thank you, Jesus, for the beautiful things that you are doing and working in my life. I release this disappointment to you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I thank you for freedom that just comes in this place right now. Just freedom. Just the spirit of freedom to come in this place right now. In Jesus' name. I believe also that this is a word for our nation. That our nation is carrying a sense of disappointment. We had so much hope and so much that we were thinking. And, and though we've been through a great election and we thank God for it. They, you know, we've got 50% of our young people can't find jobs. And there's disappointment. There's disappointment in the tensions that we have. I don't think we, it's real. It just is what it is. I'm not blaming anybody or anything. But I believe the Lord says, I, I, I want to take you forward. I want to take you on. So I'm going to ask Stig, he just felt a word in the, in the worship just to release that. And then I'm going to pray and then, we, then we're going to be finished. Thank you, Stig. I want to proclaim over South Africa. The Lion of Judah is roaring against darkness against every evil darkness that are over this country. Because the light has come and light is shining. And I want to proclaim that this light is going to be in you to shine to your neighbors, to your family, to your workplace. Shine the light of Jesus Christ because the light has won. Amen. 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 We, the team's going to lead us in a song of a declaration of God's purposes, that we will not miss our appointment with His purpose. Not as individuals, not as a church, and not as a nation will we miss our appointment with His purpose. No disappointment will rob us. But like this family, our story continues, and God has good in store for us. I know the plans I have for you. Jeremiah 29. Not to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. Let's just proclaim in worship as we end the service, and then I'm going to release you. Thank you, Zila.